0: Hello and welcome to The Legal Marketing Studio, a podcast devoted to examining successful marketing strategies, driving new business development at law firms from the largest international firm to the solo attorney. The podcast is a production of Picture More Business, a corporate photography studio with a core focus on the legal industry. I'm Michael Meyer, the host of The Legal Marketing Studio, and in this episode, I am joined by Michael F.
1: Schein. So it's great to have you back. Thank you. And you're back because you're publishing a book. Yeah. I, um, I am, I am um, fortunately not publishing it myself, which many people do these days. I've got the, the kind people at McGraw Hill to help out. So that's, that's really exciting. That is exciting. And it's on the same topic that you talked to us about a couple of years back. Yeah, I, I've been, I have been thinking about these concepts for a decade. I came up with the idea for the book more than five years ago. So it's, it's been a long time coming, this, this project.
0: Well, I'm glad that you've considered me one of one of your mini operas to get the word out.
1: <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah, that, that is a concept in the book. I like what you did there.
0: But let's start with this. Just remind our listeners what, what hype is and how you kind of define that and sort of what the book's all about.
1: Yeah, so hype, I think, in most people's minds is considered a negative thing you know if you're hyping something up or if you're full of hype what it's traditionally meant is that you are blowing hot air around something that truly doesn't have value that being said i noticed at a certain point that in certain communities that's not always how hype is used and 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 um one that i noticed was was hip-hop that's kind of where i got the idea for using this word because in in hip-hop so if you if you look at older rap groups, they would actually have a member of the act called the hype man, like Flava Flav in, in uh, Public Enemy is, is the example that's kind of famous. And not only were they in charge of getting crowds excited about the group and plastering stickers all over the neighborhood and being in charge of that they, they would rap. they were part of the group you know so the art and the hype and the marketing so to speak was part of the same it wasn't like oh gosh i'm an artist i have to do this marketing stuff what a drag it was all part of the same thing and i thought that was cool because it, it occurred to me you know that why does hype have to be a negative maybe all it is is getting a large number of people really emotional to get them to go in a certain direction. And that direction can be bad, but it can also be really good, you know? And so the book I wrote, The Hype Handbook, is is looking not at traditional salespeople and marketers, but at untraditional or non-traditional, quote unquote promoters, you know, rock managers, even propaganda artists, cult leaders, various mischief makers and saying, all right, we're gonna forget for a minute. Are these people doing, you know, what they do on behalf of something we agree with or disagree with, or that's moral or immoral, but what are the math psychology principles that they're playing with? And can we reapply that stuff ethically? So that's kind of the, the core idea.
0: Last time, one of the things, one of the concerns I had was that ethical moral component. And what you're saying really is that it doesn't, you're not suggesting people go out and become cult leaders.
1: Not right? at and, all. The opposite actually,
0: right but that these things, you can use a lot of these contexts as sort of asymmetrical marketing in a sense. Is that?
1: Yeah, I I think so. I mean, I actually wrote the book because it really annoyed me. I mean, for a couple reasons, but one of the reasons was it really, really bothered me, beyond annoyed me, that the people I've encountered, both in public you know kind of celebrity life and just out there who are selling garbage understand how to use this stuff whereas the people who are selling quote unquote are trying to make the good stuff or trying to make the world a better place have this philosophy they say oh i shouldn't have to do that it's immoral it's unethical and as a result the people selling garbage who see the world as it really is and how human beings really behave continue to push garbage much more effectively than the rest of us pitch put good stuff forward because what it comes down to i don't want people to get the message that this is about lying or deceiving because that's lying and deceiving that is just being a liar and a cheat what i'm saying is that whether you like it or not people especially in groups behave irrationally and they get excited over things that we don't understand why i mean i can't tell you how many people for example say that they're not religious and then they go to a rock concert or 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 some sort of theatrical event and they're just completely transported and 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 you know that's the same stuff it's it's the, the same you know, someone will say, I can't believe people put these fish on the back of their car, these Christians, and then they'll put some band sticker or the Grateful Dead Bears on the back of their car, right? So I think the reason I wrote this book among one of the reasons is that, I, A, I want to convince people that this isn't about lying, cheating, and stealing, and the reason that that people pushing bad stuff are so much better at this is they're just a little more clear-eyed about how people behave, because maybe they're cynical or whatever, but 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 the people who are a little more do-goodery, and I don't mean that as a bad thing, I probably fall more along that line. They think about how things ought to be, right? And and I guess I want to convince people that there's no ethical component. I mean, I don't want you to lie, I don't want you to cheat, I don't want you to steal. That's just lying. That's just people are gonna find that out. That's betraying trust. But but I guess. I want to convince people that that this is just how humans behave. And if you want to be more successful at getting your point across, you need to kind of position your stuff in accordance with how human beings really do behave rather than how you'd like them to behave.
0: Right. I mean, and I think in this context, I mean, the audience here, primarily attorneys, legal marketers, and, you know, I imagine there's some other professional services folks who sell in a similar way. You know that model of people just coming to you because they know who you are isn't doesn't work anymore and you have to draw attention to yourself right and so this book is really all about how do i draw attention to myself what are some of the techniques that i can use that we respond to at an emotional psycho- psychological level that people will notice me
1: yeah i mean so so if i were a lawyer or a legal marketer i know the first thing i'd be thinking is this is all fine and good if you're selling uh you know Rock music, or internet courses, or Tony Robbins-style business coaches. But I'm a lawyer. I'm under extreme scrutiny, you know, with with, with um, compliance and and this and that. And that that's true. And I guess one of the things I want to get across is that if you scrape away all the glitz and glitter and the fun stories, there are principles that can be used for everyone and done ethically. So let's take a lawyer. So. A good example for an attorney might be the case of um, the, the, you know, this guy, Frederick Taylor, who it's arguable whether his ideas were even legitimate. And I'm not saying sell illegitimate ideas, but he created this thing, scientific management, that's the basis of every MBA program in America and all business consulting. So very brass tack stuff.
0: I mean, in his example, he creates a structure within which his ideas can exist and then just sticks to them with complete certainty.
1: Not only that, you know, um, Frederick Taylor, when he had a very, very simple concept, he would gussy it up with scientific jargon. So he would use equations and this and that. And when he had a very complicated topic, he would simplify it. He 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 would introduce it in stages. So there's just communication methods that our brains find a lot easier to get addicted to and to understand.
0: It doesn't matter whether you're selling or whether you're presenting at court or, you know, negotiating a contract. Like, you still want to make sure that the message you want to get across is getting across and that the attention is where it needs to be. Yeah,
1: I mean, I didn't talk about Jerry Spence in this book because I couldn't include everything, but he was this amazing trial lawyer. And he was one of the great hype artists, by my definition, there was. He won every single case, whether he had a case or not, because he just knew how to frame things.
0: So let's go through a couple of the... Uh, ideas in the book Uh, because there's a handful here that I think makes sense within a professional services context. I think we can probably skip the trickster, right? I I think that probably a little tricky in a professional services context, especially with, with attorneys, uh, ethical constraints in terms of marketing.
1: And I do Uh, want to say that's not about lying, but it's about being mischievous and it probably doesn't work for an attorney.
0: Right. I mean, I think there are, and, and to be clear, you can use, you can pick and choose which strategies in the book work in your situation. It's not like they're a, a high, you know, a building blocks where you're using all of them in right. sort of a hierarchical way, right? You can that, pick and choose. 100% right. That's one hundred percent right. That's
1: one hundred percent right.
0: In a very simple way, we could start with theater, sure. right? Because I think a lot of us don't think of how we present ourselves, but I can think of any number of networking meetings that I've been to where there are attorneys who come in with a certain kind of flair or panache. Um, and it's kind of mirrored by this self-confidence, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the kind of theater you're talking about, where you present an outward persona that matches what you're selling.
1: I think that's, that's part of it. And I think the other part is being aware that the senses matter. You know what I mean? Like, you, you can be logical all day long and present a great argument. And that's nice. But human beings are affected by their senses, right? They're affected by illogical things, even the most logical of us. They're affected by lights. They're affected by dress. They're affecting costumes, which is the clothing you wear. They're affected by tastes and smells and Music and sound and whatever. and I mean, you know, we can make fun of some of the best lawyers of all time how they used theater, but they were the most theatrical people ever. I mean, there's obviously the o j trial, you know, we can make fun of uh, Johnny Cochran all day long with his with his rhyming. I mean, the guy spoke in verse, you know he he had the glove and he showed the glove. I mean, he was very theatrical, and whatever you want to say about him, he was the best at what he did. You know, there's Clarence Darrow, which which, you know, lawyers probably know about. He was so theatrical in his way that they made a play about him, Inherit the Wind. He was he was he was he he, he was fantastic, you know, with that way. Remember, the original theater in Greece and in Shakespeare had very few props, had very, you know, little sets. You know, it wasn't the Lion King on Broadway. Right. And And I think the best lawyers are fantastic at that when they're in a courtroom and then when they go out and try to draw attention to themselves. They're, 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 they make a commercial with the law books in the background saying what everyone else says and no one pays any attention to it. So again, theatricality is not about coming in with a cape and, and, a, and a headdress and you know yelling and screaming. It's about, yeah, like looking at the full picture and trying to tap into people's emotions.
0: Arthur Levin had been on the podcast a while back, first season, I think. And he had talked about one of his clients who had this sort of shtick in a way but she would send her clients cookies right um and again we're just thinking you know it doesn't have to be these big ideas sometimes these very small gestures can be the theatrical element
1: when jet blue first became an airline or when i first heard about it i was on JetBlue. And at the beginning, and that was before, they were the only airline to have little TVs and do the the little funny announcements. Now everyone's copied them. The seats were roomy, all that stuff. But that's all just like functional stuff, right? But cool. And I was on this plane. And, you know, think how many people there are in a plane compared to how many people they service. 0.00001% of all the people they service, right? And a guy comes to the front, and it was the CEO of JetBlue. And he says, listen, you know, um, I'm so pleased that you guys are here, X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. And he walked through the aisles and handed out cookies. The cookie thing reminded me of this. Now, there were only a couple of people on the plane, and he could have said to himself, what was the point of that? I have told so many people about this, and to this day, I love JetBlue, probably more because of that than anything. And I'm sure every other person did, too. And... You know, we now know a lot about exponential growth since coronavirus. You know, a hundred people can do a lot of damage when it comes to spreading a virus. You know, and the same is true for a message. And that was very theatrical. Did the CEO need to hand out cookies and make an announcement on on the at the front? And even the fact that they do funny little announcements and that they you know have TVs and that it's you know all of that. I mean, that's and that's a very brass tacks industry, an airline, and they're very very theatrical. Not in the like they don't do Vegas, you know dances down the aisles, but but they don't need to. Right. These things can be small.
0: Um something else there that's interesting is it doesn't have to be a direct I mean part of the these strategies that you're advocating for aren't about making a direct connection necessarily, but creating that potential for exponential growth, that potential for your message to spread indirectly. Um, it's funny, I was thinking about as you were talking about, you know, the CEO making those gestures and doing something that doesn't have a, you know, the people are already in the seats at that point, right? The point that isn't to sell
1: a hundred seats. That's a great point. Exactly. Ah. Everyone is worried about sales. This wasn't about sales.
0: You know, one of the others that I think is interesting is uh, finding a void and filling it. Just given how much demand there is for content right now, it seems like that would be uh, one that the professional services can use right now, that there are people that are looking for clarity Uh, They're looking for certainty in what are frankly uncertain times. And I don't mean the past week. We're recording this a couple of days after the election, but for the last eight months and really looking forward for the next year or so, times are uncertain. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think there's an opportunity for especially uh, filling a void for people's need for that uh, or for, you know, setting down that rock, another idea that you
1: suggest in the book it's it's interesting because you brought up some really interesting points i mean i think the the idea of creating that there's a void it's people will think about okay they'll say things like what's the 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 gap in the marketplace and they'll say okay there's not enough white papers or okay um most people are delivering um this sort of professional service i'm going to provide this sort of professional service and i certainly made that mistake when i went on my own 10 years ago I had worked in 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 the bpo industry which is it's funny to think about now but it's an industry that ran customer service call centers and my original business plan not actually that i ever wrote it down maybe i should have was that i was going to be a a copywriter for 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 telecom and the call center industry because i was always looking for those kind of writers and no one did it as well as me and that's a void not really you know what i mean I mean that's a very surface level void, but that's not an emotional void. People aren't like, oh yes, I really did need a telecommunications copywriter. That's not how people really make decisions. They think they do, but they don't. So I, I think your concept of of what a void means is 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 more like it. It's really like what's going on in society. What are people? Where is that large emotional void that people may not even know they have? Right. So. I mean, the example I use in the book, um, is the Fox sisters. And, and to just sort of talk about this very briefly, um, you've probably seen sort of those caricatures of seances from like 200 years ago, 150 years ago, where everyone sat around and held hands and tried to talk to the dead. And we thought that that was so primitive, but what's funny is that wasn't in a very primitive time. I mean, science was, was you know, the idea of progress was huge. That was a huge scientific explosion, even more than now. That's when the rail around when the railroads were, were, were invented, the telegraph, I mean, all kinds of things. So that was not, these were not a bunch of like, primitive people sitting around talking to ghosts. So how could such logical people, such progress oriented people be convinced that Seances, so the Fox sisters were the first people who said that they spoke to the dead, you know, they would hear these tapping noises and this, they, and, and they spoke to the dead and everyone believed them. And it became this craze for speaking to the dead. And it turned out they were just cracking their joints against uh, floorboards, you know, but people wanted to believe it. Well, why? Because it was mostly women who were attracted to this. And it was during the Civil War. And people don't realize how bad the Civil War was. Like we're going through a bad period right now. Six hundred thousand Americans died, I believe the number is. That's like a massive number of people in like a four-year period, and they were mostly men. A lot of death, you know. So people really wanted to believe that they could speak to the people they missed, and as a result, um, they wanted to believe it. Plus, there was a huge disruption. There, there you know, there, there was there was new technology replacing old technology, new communication replacing old communication. So. And, and what does creating a rock means? It means something that's unchanging, right? So like you could say the Bible is that way. Sometimes people, again, who aren't religious say, why do people believe this stuff? It was written 5,000 years ago. Because no matter what's going on in someone's lives, if you have a lot of unhappiness in your life, that's something that doesn't change. God's always going to be there. So how can you replicate some of this, right? Um, pinpoint an area where people have A real need emotionally so I don't know let's take the example of this book, this is a business to business book in a lot of ways right I mean this is for business people. There is a void right now there's a frustration because people are really challenged to be heard above the noise people are feeling very lost they used to know what to do to succeed professionally. And now do I do the gig economy? Do I go on my own? Am I going to be fired from my job? Do I need a social media presence? And that's really scary. It used to be that you just worked hard at your job, you know? So this is saying, here's a Bible, a handbook to teach you what to do. So think about it. Like everyone is going around writing business books. They're saying, oh, if I write a business book, I'll publish it, self-publish it. Oh, that'll be great, because then I'll be an authority. And then they worry, they wonder why they're not succeeding after they do that. It's because a business book is not the same as a business Bible. What you want to do is create the rock of like, this thing holds all the answers that you can ever encounter. So the seven habits of highly effective people, you read that book, there are seven things that I am sure Franklin Covey, or what's his name, Stephen Covey, that all successful people do and you can master it. And it's is—it's like the 10 commandments. That's a rock. There's no uncertainty in that. It's very simple and and elegant. And so find that void and then create that unshakable answer, that all-in-one solution. And that goes a long way. I was thinking back to a
0: conversation on the podcast with uh, Steve Wilson, who's over at Osborne Clark, which is a, a big international law firm. And they have I'm not going to describe it very well, but they essentially have this turnkey solution for starting a business or moving into a new market. And so they have these products that essentially fill that role in a way, right? Buy this and it's going to solve all of the problems that you're going to have or all of, you know, help you meet all of the challenges in this effort that you're going to
1: make. I, I think that's a great point. I, you know, like I always get really surprised by HubSpot and people's relationship with that tool. So that's a marketing automation tool. It's the de facto marketing automation tool. In my world, that's a big deal. And it's a great tool, you know? And those those guys do a great job. That being said, I can't tell you how many times people I encounter will say, I spent X amount of money, a lot of money on this tool. And they really think by buying HubSpot, they're just gonna solve all of their lead generation problems and how, how could that possibly be possible you're going to buy a piece of technology no matter how good that technology is and then they realize they have to learn how to use it they actually have to have good content but that's just a testament to how good hubspot has been and they never lie they never lie because they have a good tool but they literally coined the term inbound marketing i mean again i'm um, I talk about books just because I'm a writer, but it, this can be done in a lot of ways. They wrote a book called Inbound Marketing, which is like, this is the Bible for inbound marketing. And, and the answer was, you have to automate these processes and put it, the content out this way and that way. And they just did such a good job at, at making their tool more than just a piece of technology. It's like, this thing will make you a new kind of marketer. And that's what is absolutely necessary to get leads. And that's just it's funny. I mean, people and they never say it right out, straight out. They never lie. But people, it's they think that if they buy this thing, they're just gonna magically become successful in that way. And that's just a testament to how good their messaging is in, in according to these principles. I mean what what it strikes me as throughout reading the book was simply
0: being aware of the power that a lot of small gestures like this can have um or small actions can have. If they're done in a way uh, that really is focused on how they're going to be responded to, how someone's going to
1: receive that action, yeah, I think it's it's about being conscious, right? and and and, you know, meaning being aware that there are certain ways that human beings spread information, certain ways that people are persuaded, certain ways that people forget about, that they let their guard down and open themselves up and sort of behaving in alignment with those ways. That's what hype artists do. That's what good marketers do. That's what people who get attention do, you know? That's what salespeople do. And, and other people just think of that as like secondary, like that, why should I have to think about that? I'm good, I'm good at my craft, you know? And okay. I mean, it's so funny. So the, the marketing agency that I run um, works largely with consultants, not entirely, but that's how we set ourselves apart. And consultants are people selling their ideas. And I'll often run ag- across people who are just so, so smart. They're, they're like, if you if you let them work with you, it would transform everything. And they struggle, you know, they do okay, but they struggle. They're not zillionaires. And then you meet people who are incompetent who aren't good at what they do but they go out of business but then you meet people who are just kind of good at what they do they're good you know they're not they're not they're not revolutionizing the world but they get results they're good and they almost always financially outperform the outs, the ones who are outstanding at what they do and what i normally see is the ones who are outstanding at what they do they say Oh, I hear this over and over again. My ideas are so good, but X, Y, and Z consultant has gotten so much more money with it. It's not right. You know, why can't people notice what I'm doing? Because they're so focused on creating this awesome stuff. And it is awesome, but they're almost resentful that they have to package it. People should understand their highly complex, you know, because good ideas are complex, but they make no effort to to, to to make it digestible or make it spread. Whereas the people who are good at what they do, they're not they're helping people. Their products are good, you know? You know, um, but they get the human psychology part. They get that it needs an audience, they get that they they need to simplify the hard stuff and complicate the easy stuff. They get that they need to package it properly, they get that they need a little flash and panache.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What for you is the most interesting
1: of these hype strategies? Like what for you distills it to its essence? Um, I think the stuff I find the most interesting are the wild stories, because that's the most fun, you know, the trickster stories. Like you said, the the rock bands, the cults, all of this. But I don't think that's the stuff to me that's been the most useful. To me, the stuff that's been most useful is the workaday stuff. That is hype that you wouldn't think of as hype. So I'll give you an example. I mean, what I found interesting were these things that people do underneath the surface that get a big reaction, like piggybacking. The fact that almost every hype artist, from really unsavory characters to Richard Branson, who most people love, what they do is they make what they're doing seem like a grassroots following, like it's coming up from nowhere but all the while they spend a lot of time building webs of connections under the surface that almost acts like a secret society that when they need things to happen very quickly, they focus on getting people that they're bonded with to affect an audience of 100,000. So it's it's the equivalent of an internet marketing. If you, you could either build your Instagram following person by person by person, which typically would take 25 years, and then by that point, Instagram doesn't exist, or make it look like you're building it person by person by person, doing some of those activities, but forming relationships with four powerful people who have massive Instagram followings and get them to advocate on your behalf. That's been the most useful to me. I use that every day, that concept.
0: I think that what can be taken from the book, especially in a professional services B2B kind of context is how do you build up those stores of power in sort of subtle long-term ways? Right. I think Uh, that's
1: just as powerful if not more so.
0: And at the very beginning of the conversation, you were very clear to point out that you weren't self-publishing this book, but that you're, you know, you're going through, um, yeah, right. You're going through McGraw Hill. Um, and you're very, I mean, even within sort of these very traditional modes of distribution, publicity, like there are, you know, again, going back to that very simple, you know, work a day kind of applications. This is sort of a work a day application of that as you're riding on their
1: coattails, so to speak. A hundred. So, so um first of all, I don't want to denigrate anyone who's self-publishing a book. I mean, Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman was self-published and James Altucher self-publishes. That being said, um, a lot of people self-publish that aren't very good because anyone can self-publish. And people are starting to get that because self-published books used to look horrible. They don't anymore. And people are starting to understand that. But it goes deeper than that. And this is a hype tactic. It's symbols of credibility. So I have a chapter called um, uh, Become uh, a, a, a Magus. That was the old word for magician. And these magicians who just, you know, there would be wars and overthrows of one ethnic group by another. And these people would just always stay in power, like in ancient Persia. And what they would do is they would make predictions and forecasts. And that's funny, right? Forecasts. These people would make forecasts and they would use animal bones and tea leaves and whatever they would use. And I almost feel like all of these quantitative things that people use now is is no different than these animal bones and tea leaves because we see that they're about as effective. You know what I mean? But if you have you're using numbers and charts and figures, to me those are just an, a new form of these magical symbols and those are credibility symbols. And they would wear amulets and robes and this and that. And we think that's so primitive, but you know it's 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 the stereo it's the archetypal doctor in the white coat. You know our brains you know, if we sat and, and assessed every single thing we came across for its credibility and did the research, you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. That would take 92 hours in a 24 hour day. It's impossible. So, and our brains know that. So we make patterns. If a book has a real publisher, it's very hard to get published. They reject most books. They have to pay money for the book and they have to put marketing dollars into the book and they have to distribute it in a bookstore. Ergo, If a book has a logo on it, it's a better book and it's more credible and the person who wrote it is a real expert or else the book wouldn't have gotten published. Now, is that true? No. I mean, how many books have we read that have have been published that are are garbage? I certainly have, you know. Yours isn't. Let's be clear. Thank you. (laughs) Um. (laughs) But no, and and honestly, if you look at percent, we we don't make these these heuristics as 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 the fancy pants social scientists call it. These shortcuts come from somewhere, you know. I mean, there's a higher percentage of good books that are published than self-published because anyone can self-publish a book, and not everyone can get a book published. Right, it's one of those shortcuts,
0: one of those mental shortcuts where you see a sign and you think it means yeah.
1: It's why you wear a suit as a lawyer. Listen. I don't think people will even be wearing ties in 40 years. Like, I think that'll be like wearing ascots, you know? I mean, people used to dress up every single day. They don't anymore, but lawyers still do. In England, they still wear white wigs. Why? Because it confers credibility. It's it's a mental shortcut. It means you pass the bar, you know?
0: It's funny, as you were answering that question, I was like, oh, hype strategy number... Number seven, hype strategy, number eight. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think this is, uh, this is good. How should we close this? What do you, how do you want to close off this conversation?
1: I guess for a business audience, the, 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 the thing I want them to take away is to sort of avoid some of the problems I had when I first went on my own, because I read every marketing and sales book that there was especially marketing books and while a lot of them are good on balance they didn't help me that much and the reason is because they often focus on the the tactic of the day i mean i remember reading a book all of google plus and at the time it was great you know it helped me for a couple of months but google plus doesn't even exist anymore you know and there's all these digital courses about creating sales funnels and You know, uh, this landing page and that landing page and Snapchat and Instagram and all that stuff's important. But those are tools. That's like taking that's the difference between going to a to a three day carpentry class and becoming an architect. You know what I mean? You know, learning how to use hammers and nails is great and it's important, you know, and saws. But it's not architecture. You know what I mean? It, it, it's not enough to build a really beautiful, long-lasting house. You need the tools, but tools change, you know? But, but you know, cathedrals were built with weird-looking metal hammers, and, you know, there were no electric power tools. But the principles were, were the same. So I think it's worth knowing that these principles, what I tried to focus on, these strategies for attracting attention and accomplishing your goals and, and generating en- energy around your ideas. Are timeless, I mean Augustus, the first emperor of Rome, commissioned the Aeneid, the epic poem, to legitimize his rule. You know what I mean, and it worked this stuff has, and I talked to you about the ancient you know magicians that that, that did what they did, so I guess. I want people to understand the true fundamentals of what it means to set yourself apart and generate a result and generate attention and then go learn the tools. But those tools are changing. So don't do it in the wrong order. Whether you get it from me or from somebody else, study the psychology, study group psychology, study how people really behave, and then match the tools.
0: I love it. Michael F. Shine from Microfame Media, author of The Hype Handbook. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. It is always a pleasure to talk with you.
0: And thank you to our listeners who've joined us for this episode. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast. The Legal Marketing Studio can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Wherever you find us, please leave a like or a review. Extended content, including photographs and links, can be found on our website, legalmarketing.studio. Note that there's no .com. It is just legalmarketing.studio. The Legal Marketing Studio is a production of Picture More Business, a full-service corporate photography studio focused on the legal industry, based in Brooklyn, New York, and working with clients nationally. We'd love to explore collaborative opportunities. More information can be found at picturemorebusiness.com. That's all for this episode. Thanks so much for listening.